Influenza pandemic of 1918 was irregular in that it was particularly widespread and particularly deadly. Often called the Spanish flu, the disease probably didn't actually start in Spain. We don't know where it started, but we do know that it gained that moniker not because of its origin, but because reports of the disease's prevalence in Spain seemed amplified compared to reports from other countries because censorship and other typically journalistically rich economies like Germany, the United States, the United Kingdom, and France was particularly harsh at this point in history. That censorship was the result of wartime censorship boards. World War I was brought to an effective end when Germany signed an armistice in November of 1918, and it was brought to an official end by the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed in June of 1919. But one of the defining features of the First World War was that of front lines reporting, enabled in part by the emergence of the electric telegraph and of sophisticated and fairly reliable railway systems. So journalists could report from the front lines of the conflict, take pre-Kodachrome color photographs, and wire their reports very quickly back home. Governments implemented often heavy-handed censorship programs, though, to make sure they were able to filter what made it into their newspapers and radio news programs, both to keep leaks of vital military information from reaching the enemy, reports about soldiers on the ground, for instance, that could provide their opposition with identifying geographic information which, in turn, could provide them with targets, and to keep morale high at home so that their non-combat population would stay optimistic, thus keeping the industrial, economic, and population-generating and sustaining aspect of the war machine steadily churning along. What all of this meant for the emergence of this highly virulent flu was that, despite the high number of people who caught it and the high number of deaths that resulted from it, many newspapers around the world, including those in population centers where the damage caused was quite high, didn't have straight information about it, and locals that were thus afflicted could be forgiven for not realizing it was as bad as it was. Wartime censors, after all, are often quite effective at this kind of filtering, and for many people, the news they received via these censored channels were the gospel truth, when it came to anything non-war-related, at least. Spain, though, had a hands-off policy when it came to censoring information about this disease possibly because they believed having that information in the common person's hands would help them be informed, and as a result, would allow them to take proper precautions, which in turn would lead to less devastating consequences for their population. But also, very likely, because they were neutral in the war, and therefore had relatively less to lose by allowing people to have more complete information, even while a massive conflict was being fought elsewhere on the continent. Accurate information from elsewhere is tricky to come by from this period for these same reasons. But because the Spanish press was the only press publishing real flu numbers, it seemed to them and to the rest of the world that they were particularly hard hit by this disease. King Alfonso XIII, the monarch of Spain, famously caught it himself. So the name Spanish flu caught on worldwide and stuck. By the numbers... This pandemic was incredibly deadly, with about 500 million people catching it 
including people living in the most remote Pacific Islands and in the Arctic Circle, which is pretty nuts, but also shows how globalization was beginning to take hold, even at the beginning of the 20th century. And of that half billion people who caught it, it's thought that somewhere between 50 to 100 million people died from it, which for perspective is something like 3 to 5% of the total human population at that time. And that's more people than died on both sides of the war itself combined. Even modern scientists are not certain why this flu spread so far so fast or why it was so deadly. Some theories posit that it killed so many people that it infected because the particular H1N1 strain caused what's called a cytokine storm, which in essence turns the body's immune system against itself, which is also an explanation for why so many young people in particular were among the dead. Their immune systems being relatively more healthy in this case was bad for them when those immune systems were weaponized against their bodies by this disease. Other research, though, has shown that this particular instance of flu was really not all that different from any other flu, and that it was the condition of the planet and the people on that planet during this period that caused it to be so devastating. The world had been pulled apart by World War I, and the overcrowded conditions in many cities, the malnutrition caused by irregular flows of food, the relocation of medical professionals to the front line rather than in population centers, and the rapid shift of vast numbers of people into unfamiliar territories, exposing them to new climates, new germs, new people, new situations, and all kinds of other infections and war-related injuries paved a prime path for this flu to infect vast numbers of people who were in non-ideal states of being to fight it off. And because it was able to spread so far and wide with so many hosts of so many different shapes and sizes and climates, it was able to mutate rapidly leading to what's called a superinfection, where people will mostly fend off one disease, building up a resistance to that permutation of it, only to be affected again with another mutated version of that disease shortly thereafter, their bodies already weakened from the first time through, and without proper antibodies to fight off the new version, because it was able to evolve into something novel enough to be immune to those existing antibodies in the meantime. This is something that very seldom happens because, fortunately, this kind of conflict is immensely rare, and the variables that surrounded this war, the novelty of new technologies of former geographically locked people and microbiota being exposed to new places and people and germs at rapid rates, the incredible amount of malnutrition and poor hygiene and forced relocations that result from conflict on this scale, they hadn't happened like that before, and haven't really happened since except in the case of the Second World War, which, likewise, led to the spread of all kinds of diseases, but which fortunately, if we can say anything was fortunate about that war, also happened in a time of far superior medical know-how. Antibiotics were discovered in 1928, so the period between the two world wars was thankfully fairly productive in terms of our ability to at least lessen the effects of such pandemics. What I'd like to talk about today is pandemics more broadly, through the lens of one that is starting to take shape right now, in the early days of 2020, and what it might foretell for how we deal with and report upon such issues in the future. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Kaishin Global, 
and it's entitled Mysterious Lung Disease in China Linked to New Virus in SARS Family, World Health Organization Says. This is a remarkably low-key headline for a story that has been sandblasted across above-the-fold news real estate over the past few weeks, leading to the kind of media frenzy that leaves one wondering whether we're looking at a legitimately worrying piece of news or a hyperbolic surge of clickbait. What we actually know about this disease at the moment that I'm recording this is fairly limited, and the news about it and its spread will almost certainly be updated significantly by the time this episode goes live. And that's not the focus of this episode to begin with, fortunately. But the broad strokes are that it's a coronavirus, which is a family of viruses that are most commonly noticed in animals, as they can cause diarrhea in livestock and upper respiratory diseases in chickens. In humans, coronaviruses generally blend in with other sorts of viruses, the only distinctions being fairly academic and not practically relevant. They cause the common cold and other non-ideal, but not super worrying, ailments of that kind most of the time. Every once in a while, though, a coronavirus will go wild, as was the case with Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, that had an outbreak in China back in late 2002 through mid-2003, infecting a little over 8,000 people and resulting in nearly 800 deaths, so a fatality rate of not quite 10%, which is terrifying. In the years since, scientists have tracked the origins of that particular strain of that particular coronavirus to a group of horseshoe bats in the Chinese Yunnan province, which communicated the disease to small cat-like mammals called civets, which then in turn communicated it to humans. In this case, it would seem that the new coronavirus emerged in an open market in Wuhan that sold live fish, birds, and other animals. The market was shut down and disinfected once it was identified as being the probable source of the disease, but not before it had sickened a confirmed 59 people, which later spread to the much larger figures that we have seen since. The city from which this disease seems to have sprung up, Wuhan, is a city of over 11 million people, a university town, with a lot of car factories and a declining steel industry. It's located on the important Yangtze River, it has resultantly been a major trade route throughout much of its history. It's a major transportation hub, and despite that declining steel industry, it has still benefited mightily from China's middle-class surge, with the average Wuhan resident's disposable income increasing sixfold from 2002 to 2018. This centrality is part of why Wuhan has been an inauspicious place for such a disease to emerge. And the Lunar New Year holiday, the biggest holiday on the Chinese calendar in terms of travel and merrymaking, including the tradition of attending big populous events and going to places like the Disney Shanghai Resort, was likewise non-ideal. Given other circumstances, in other words, there's a chance that this impending pandemic, the term for an epidemic that has expanded internationally, might never have become a thing, might have remained annoying and a little scary to some, but generally limited in scope and scale easily cordoned off by Chinese officials. The reality, though, is that what looks to be a particularly hardy and transmissible coronavirus, and one with an already significant death toll, has hit at the wrong place and the wrong time. And the ramifications are potentially substantial within China, but also worldwide. On the day I initially outlined this episode, the headlines were focused on China's locking down of 13 cities, with a combined population of over 35 million, the death toll doubling in China overnight from 18 to 36, with one of the victims in his mid-30s. 
Cases of the virus showing up in 32 of China's 34 provinces. The World Health Organization deciding not to declare a global emergency, though saying that they will reconvene in 10 days to reassess the situation. The cancellation of many large-scale Lunar New Year events. The shutting down of the Forbidden City, a popular tourist attraction, alongside the temporary closing of the Shanghai Disney Resort. A second case of the coronavirus has been confirmed in the United States, in the city of Chicago. The Chinese government has declared a public health emergency, enacting level one emergency response procedures, which is the country's highest level of emergency response, which in turn means the state council will take over the planning and execution of medical responses, research, emergency supply management and distribution, international relationships efforts related to the disease, and information dissemination. Nearly 1,000 cases have been confirmed within China, alongside the five confirmed in Thailand, three in Singapore, two each in Japan, Vietnam, and South Korea, and the two now confirmed in the U.S. It's been posited that the disease is transmissible from person to person, as health officials in China have identified fourth-generation cases, meaning the outbreak is moving quickly enough to have traveled from person to person to person to person already which almost completely diminishes hopes that some officials had harbored a few days ago that transmission of the disease between humans might be quite limited or even non-existent. There are also fluffier reports about a robot that's been used to treat the first U.S.-based patient who was confirmed to have the coronavirus, about the social media boasting of one woman who claimed to take medicine to lower her temperature before going through the Chinese blockade, so that she could make it through and go to a fancy restaurant in France that night. A woman who was then subsequently tracked down by the local Chinese embassy to make sure that she didn't have the coronavirus. And scattered reports of doctors in Wuhan begging the international community for more supplies. And the government for more space and medical aid. They've reportedly had to turn many people away at the doors of their hospitals for lack of all three. And there have been further, thus far unconfirmed reports of shortages of face masks, both in stores and online, within quick shipping range, due to so many people trying to protect themselves from the spread of the disease. Now to show how quickly the news is changing on this, as of the day I'm recording this, two days later, there are reports that scientists are already analyzing the genes of the new coronavirus in an effort to understand what we're dealing with and how we might prevent its spread, and potentially develop a vaccine for it. We've got a name for it now, as a result of that investigation, NCOV 2019, or 2019 NCOV, depending on who you ask, which stands for Novel Coronavirus in the year 2019, though Wuhan pneumonia is a moniker that is being commonly and more casually applied in the press right now. China has moved to restrict travel, including tours overseas. Schools in Hong Kong and in mainland China have canceled school for the next few weeks. And the U.S. government has ordered the evacuation of citizens working at the U.S. consulate in Wuhan and their families. 56 people are confirmed dead, and more than 2,000 are confirmed infected in China alone, according to local health authorities. And evaluations of infections continue elsewhere, with reports trickling in throughout the day, updating those figures. The numbers are still quite small, beyond China, and beyond Wuhan in particular. But because of the globalized nature of the world in general, because of China's increasing centrality to many other countries' economies beyond their own, and because Wuhan is a bit of a hub within the larger hub that China has become, it's becoming increasingly clear that, as a scientist who's run simulations on the spread of this kind of disease said on CNBC recently, quote, probably the cat's already out of the bag.
end quote. There are a few different angles from which this is an interesting story, and I'd like to address each of those in turn. The first is how we're reporting on this emerging story, a story for which there are still so many unknowns, but which we also want to make sure people are informed about, because it could literally be a life-or-death thing, knowing the right information at the right time. A professor of infectious diseases, and more specifically, zoonotic ones, like this coronavirus seems to be, Dr. Tara Smith, posted a brief thread on Twitter that I'd like to quote here in full, translating a few of the shortened Twitterisms as I read, because I think it is quite relevant to this conversation. Quote, Lots of fear about coronavirus transmission this morning. Remember, it's still early. Numbers can change, and we're working with incomplete data. Four analyses are out with similar results, but they're still over a range from around 1.4 to 4, including confidence intervals. Be wary of anyone expressing any certainty at this point. There's just too much we don't know. We have great people working on analyses of sequences and transmission and clinical data slash risk factors, but we're just too early to know how this will play out. Think of the early days of West Africa's Ebola outbreak. Numbers were all over the map, and breathless op-eds were written based on worst-case scenarios. I understand that people want certainty, but those promising any concrete outcomes right now are going beyond the data. If you feel you need to do something, one, make sure you're vaccinated for influenza, so if a case comes to your area, you are one fewer febrile person to be tested and potentially isolated. Two, be careful about what you're retweeting and spreading elsewhere on social media. Rumors spread quick. Diffusing those is tougher. Don't be part of the problem. And three, you'll see some disagreement among scientists. That's okay. We're still working it out. Again, there will be lots of uncertainty from limited data in the early weeks. End quote. She then went on to share another thread that contains a list of good people to follow on this topic, and I will link to all of this in the show notes. The idea being expressed there, basically, is that it's right to be concerned, but do not succumb to panic or the implied certainty of hot takes. Wait for legit information, listen to actual experts acting in accordance with the right incentives, and don't become part of the problem. Don't retweet nonsense, don't add to the noise that almost inevitably outroars the signal, and don't assume a loss of medical establishment credibility when scientists disagree on what the data means. It's possible to be working from different sets of data in these cases, and it's possible to have different understandings of and interpretations of what that data means, and to still be more credible than internet randos tweeting their favorite conspiracy theories. Speaking of which... There is a tidy abundance of conspiracy theories emerging around this burgeoning pandemic, many of which revolve around one or two bits of information, or a combination of both. The first is that the Chinese government is a single-party setup that exercises almost complete control over its local media. As such, it is suspected by some that they may be dramatically underreporting numbers in terms of infections and deaths, and may even be covering up government actions, like the forceful sequestration of the infected, the mass burning of corpses, and the like. The second is that Wuhan is the home of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, alongside many other things, has done research into bat-based coronaviruses that may be similar to the one that is currently spreading so rapidly. They have published work on the matter, and they have even potentially patented related intellectual property and technology. Both of these things, as far as I can tell, are at least fundamentally true. The degree to which China censors their news is always up for debate, and their rationales for doing so, in any particular case, 
are things that no one beyond the local halls of power are likely to have any firm grasp on, short of speculation, as is the case, truly, with any government entity. And it does seem like the local virus lab has done research into this very topic, and in recent years. The bits and pieces of evidence that I've seen circulating online seem legitimate, and the people who know more about such things than I do, who have taken the time to look into them, seem to think that they're legit as well. So does this mean that this disease that's become so inconvenient for the Chinese government, both in terms of health effects and in terms of international reputation, was maybe accidentally released into the public somehow? And they're now trying to cover it up by blaming a local live animal market, similar to the one that was reportedly the origin of the SARS epidemic not long ago, and therefore a believable source for such a thing? Maybe, but almost certainly not. I say maybe because it's not beyond the realm of possibility for any government to try to cover their butts when they do something stupid, which they believe will mar their reputation worldwide and perhaps leave them liable in some way for cleaning up the mess. And by that logic, it's perhaps even more likely that a government that operates using top-down control mechanisms, like China, and which has its hands firmly on the levers of media power, would use those levers in just such a situation to save face, and to reassure the public that they've got things under control. Don't even worry about it. But, and this is a very big but, I do tend to think that Hanlon's razor applies here. An aphorism that says, essentially, do not ascribe to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity or ineptitude. In this case, the explanation that shoddy regulations on live animal markets is to blame, rather than a more complex and convoluted conspiracy of some kind, that rings true to me. And maybe that just means that they chose a great cover story, but we know these sorts of diseases emerge in this way. What's happening is an accurate reflection of what would happen if such a disease emerged at such a market. And all the data that's made it into the public view indicates that the first symptoms showed up in people who visited or were living near that market. Now you could say that all fits so perfectly together because it was fabricated to seem that perfect. But if you apply that logic to this situation, you then have to apply it to anything that makes sense. And as a result, the whole world, most of which makes sense if you trace it back far enough and look at all the systems that interconnect all these pieces together, the whole world is potentially a great big conspiracy because it makes sense. It's a little too perfect. So it's probably safer, lacking any credible reason to believe otherwise, that the official story that this is a disease that emerged in the normal way and that it's spreading in the normal way. And for reasons that don't involve conspiracy, it will continue to move along that course. It's probably best to believe that for the time being. Now, it's always a good idea to keep an open mind about new information as it emerges, but to steal another bit of wisdom that is oft quoted on the internet. Keep an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. It's good to be open, but not to the point of gullibility. Now, if we pull back just a little bit, from conspiracy theory territory, we do find some reports that are still tenuous, but which are actually sourced and quite a bit more solid in informational backing, that China very likely has known about this disease longer than they let on. And early on, they threatened or arrested journalists who tried to report upon it, and applied similar pressure to people who tried to post about it on social media, stifling their posts through their censorship control apparatus and telling them to cut it out or else which is a similar tactic that they applied when the SARS epidemic first arose nearly two decades ago. There is hard evidence for this happening, and it's being reported upon by news entities that would lose a lot of face if it turned out not to be true. 
and who thus require quite a bit more evidence than smaller news entities or independent speculators on the internet. So this smaller, also conspiracy, is actually quite likely real, and I suspect more of the truth about which parts of the Chinese government knew what and when will emerge as reporting on this story progresses, and that at least a few heads will roll as a consequence to protect those higher up and or to show the world that the Chinese government takes such things seriously, helping them save face. I would add that, as tends to be the case with fast-moving stories of this kind that become a sort of side hobby for some people around the world, sharing information, comparing notes, things like that, a Reddit forum has emerged on the subject. And although a few days ago it was flooded with fairly nonsensical speculation, as of the day I'm recording this at least, it actually seems to have locked in on a framework that is keeping most of the fictionalizing and intentional disaster trolling to a minimum, focusing people instead on compiling both official, well-reported-upon information and niche, not-yet-officially-reported-upon information, stemming either from background data, bits of history about Wuhan or things like the aforementioned patent related to coronaviruses, or from bits and pieces picked up from locals in the affected areas posted to local social media. There is value there, as in some cases the photos and videos posted to the local equivalent of Facebook and Snapchat demonstrate the reality of living under a contagion-based lockdown more than the numbers and facts that we are presented through much of our more formal news media. So kudos to them on that, and I hope that they're able to keep that let's not go crazy here, but let's also be participatory in the news that we're reading mentality in full force for the duration of this thing. So use it wisely and definitely don't take everything posted there at face value, but I will link to that forum, which is China underscore flu, in the show notes as well. Another perspective from which to look at this situation is through the lens of internal politics and international relations. China is, reputationally, a flourishing, burgeoning upstart economy with the wind in its sails and destiny on its side. It's become something of a truism that China will soon sit next to the United States on the throne of global superpower, though even that might be temporary. They could very well unseat the aging and haggard U.S. and lead the world into its next stage, whatever that stage ends up looking like. That's the story, anyway, and much of it is based on truth and true momentum. China has done some absolutely incredible things over the past 40 years or so, and they're at a bit of an inflection point in which many of the investments they've made over the past several decades have paid off in a big way, resulting in the biggest ever historical shift in terms of raw numbers of people from poverty to middle class. On top of that, they've managed to figure out how to make their style of government play well with the rest of the world, adapting a rigid economic model to make it more flexible, overcoming, as they did, a lot of the downsides that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, and even beating many of the world's purely capitalistic economies at their own game. That part of this success is the consequence of China's geographic position, abundance of certain resources, historical legacy, and massive population is beside the point, as is the fact that they broke the rules many times along the way to achieve the heightened position at which they currently stand. Intellectual property theft and things of that nature are not supposed to happen according to international trade rules, but they built a successful economy atop such hijinks and honestly were able to do some impressive things with what they stole. So although it's technically wrong, it's also kind of fair enough. 
Not everyone would have done so much with so relatively little, and they deserve respect, if not necessarily applause for that. The benefits of this sort of governmental model, where the structures of government and law and everything else are intertwined with the economy, with the businesses that they use to interface with the global market, are many. And the success they have seen in that space is a testament to that. But there are also murmurings that not all is as well as it seems to be. That numbers are consistently fudged is no secret. And while not technically ever formally acknowledged by the only people and institutions that could prove it, it's generally accepted worldwide that the economic figures the Chinese government makes public are skewed by some amount to improve the perception of their model, their economic system, and their ambitions. The trouble with this sort of arrangement, though, is that those next-step ambitions of theirs are heavily reliant on a positive reputation internationally and the continued support of their sprawling population internally. Historically, top-down authoritarian governments are generally only reliably toppled when the people, the whole of the population or the most powerful portions of the population, are no longer flourishing along with the people in charge. For a long while now, the Chinese government has delivered big time on their promise that their method, despite being in opposition to what the rest of the world was trending toward post-World War II, would leave them better off. And by many metrics, they were not wrong. There were a lot of hard spells along the way, and there continue to be imbalances within the society they've built. But by many indicators, they've been doing pretty all right, especially in terms of quality of life for the majority of the population. If that ever ceases to be the case, however, they could have a problem, which is part of the rationale for the falsification of economic numerical data, and part of the reason saving face is not just a pride thing, but perhaps an existential thing. In terms of their external ambitions, the Belt and Road Initiative, in particular, is meant to pave the way for China's equivalent to what the U.S. built for itself post-World War II, when it controlled the oceans of the world with a ridiculously dominant navy and a collection of military bases strategically positioned around the world. China has started relatively close to home, making clear that it controls certain areas, making it tricky to challenge certain claims, even when legitimate challenges might be available. But their expansion throughout Asia and Africa in particular have been very focused on creating trade routes that they own, including first dibs on all kinds of vital assets, like raw materials, wood, rare earth metals, that kind of thing, but also, potentially, the laborers of the future. And because rich countries, including increasingly China, are having trouble keeping up with their population replacement rate, and this is true all around the world, meaning these countries are headed toward a future in which there are more old people than young people, having relationships in place with countries where the opposite is true, like less wealthy countries in Asia and Africa, where the population expectations are the opposite. They are expected to have more young people than old people in the near future. That could be a hugely beneficial situation, especially if the relationship is slanted in your favor, as has tended to be the case with China, using its debt book diplomacy model. And I did an episode about that specifically a little while back, if you're keen to learn more about the specifics of what that model entails. Now, there's a chance that all this could blow up in the Chinese government's face, if they overextend themselves and cannot cover up the shortfall. The national debt they've accumulated during their past few decades of expansion, for instance, has ballooned, leaving them with around 40 trillion USD's worth of debt, by some estimations, which is over 300% their GDP. For comparison, the US has 105% 
their GDP in debt, around $22.7 trillion. And that is considered to be very strangely high. So three times that is three times as strangely high. Some estimates put the Chinese level of debt even higher than that, though, as, again, their public numbers tend to downplay bad news, both to help government workers avoid punishment for underperformance and to keep the public and outside world from losing faith in the Chinese model. None of which is to say that China is on the brink of some kind of disaster. Instead, this is just an indication that there are ticking bombs underneath their feet, and a lot of their behavior displays an awareness about this, leading to, at times, more protectiveness of true data than you might otherwise think is warranted, and a heightened ambition to get too big to fail, locking that worldwide China-controlled trade route and political status into place as quickly as possible, sooner rather than later. And finally, it's valuable, I think, to look at this story through the lens of what it represents about the future of the planet, most vitally that there are few isolated disasters anymore. And anything that's communicable, from diseases to misinformation, can spread virally, distance making little difference because of the nature of our interconnected systems. These systems, it should be said, are also the source of much of what makes the modern world so grand. It's amazing to have access to such abundant information, resources, connections, culture, and just about anything else that you might ask for. Inequalities are often amplified within such systems, and the continued existence of the lowest rungs of the well-being ladder is a reminder of how much work we still have to do. But the base level of wellness for the majority of people worldwide has risen, and if we can learn to make better use of the available abundance, making sure it is more equitably disseminated, we could probably be in a pretty good spot, even better than where we are now, which is already massively better than at any other point in history by almost every possible metric. At the same time, though, these connections between our governments, our economies, our way of life are still a major source of disruption and discomfort. They're generally far from as horrible as earlier cross-national interactions, which generally led to warfare, extermination, and or enslavement, but they can still be quite devastating due to unequal positions in economic power, more rapid changes in social and employment, expectations. The transmission of cultural values and economic realities has increased fairly dramatically. And due to the transmission of ideas, cultural movements, products, and diseases from place to place, those upsides come with downsides, in other words. And though I think the majority of people would prefer not to live in a time before antibiotics and the internet, it's also true that much of the news these days is filled with concerns over antibiotic-resistant superbugs and false information spread virally on social media. Many of our greatest, most valuable inventions, including the systems that we have built that allow us to work more closely together as a species, are also often the sharpest thorns in our sides. And this has probably always been true, from the development of fire to the emergence of the current global order, but the effect is amplified as the number of people and potency of our power is amplified. None of which is meant to imply that we cannot change things, rebalance these equations that we've figured out. The current global order internationally need not remain the same to stay valuable, just as our methods of sharing information and germs needn't remain precisely the same to continue to allow us to enjoy the benefits of that cross-pollination, both physical and cyber. 
this specific storyline will be defined in part by horrible loss, and that shouldn't be forgotten. Lives lost in this way, that's always tragic. But we will hopefully learn something about how to deal with these sorts of situations moving forward as a partial consequence of such losses, and maybe also learn something about how we can rearrange the pieces on the board to ensure that everyone involved, everyone connected by this global superstructure, is a little bit better shielded from the downsides of our ever-increasing levels of connectivity, and more generally, a little bit better off by all possible metrics. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a collection of short stories by one of my favorite short story authors. The book is called Exhalation, and the author is Ted Chiang. And Ted Chiang's work is just phenomenal. Some stories are a little bit more deep and dramatic and memorable than others, I would say. But they're all quite original. They come from a very unique perspective. They are largely science fiction, but a lot of them are a lot more philosophical than they are anything close to spaceships and lasers science fiction. If you had the chance to see the movie Arrival, then you have an idea of what Chang's work is like, because that film was based on one of his short stories from another one of his collections. And there were two or three stories in this collection as well that I thought would make particularly good films. We'll see if anything like that happens. Based on the success of his work in other mediums so far, I suspect we'll probably see something like that, or at least the attempt at some point. But in the meantime, if you're looking for a really wonderful short story collection, consider picking up a copy of Exhalation by Ted Chiang. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. And you can find some of my written work at exilelifestyle.com, brainlenses.com, and askcolin.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and most of the others. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.